There's another Buffett quote about it takes 20 years to build a great reputation and about five minutes to destroy it. And that was a perfectly natural wake-up call to us about just what types of infrastructural investments we needed to make. Developers have become very important. We appeal to them by just being super transparent and authentic and understanding their needs. You look at the internet and you say, oh, it's just like, so mature now. Look at these giant internet companies, are the most important businesses in the world. And yet again, we have 10x growth ahead of us. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Placharzik from Airbnb, Nichols Fane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode, we're joined by Will Gabrick, CFO at Stripe. Will leads Stripe's financial operations, including its economic strategy, business forecasting, FP&A, and all treasury duties. Prior to Stripe, Will was a partner at the very successful VC firm Thrive Capital, where he worked closely with internet businesses across all stages and geos. He's also worked as a software developer and founder himself. He holds degrees in math from Harvard and is a Yale-trained lawyer, so a very educated person. So really excited to have you, Will. Welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Glenn. So uh, maybe you could start you know, with a little bit of your background, and then we can talk about Stripe. You joined a CFO in 2015 after your successful career at Thrive, where you actually invested in Stripe, which is kind of an interesting, you liked it so much, you joined the company moment. Tell us about what you liked about Stripe as an investor, and then what led you to make the decision to join the company full-time. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you mentioned that I actually was a VC investor sort of on, on your side of the table before I joined Stripe and had you know, the foresight, privilege, uh, good luck to actually, uh, or good fortune to actually invest in Stripe on behalf of, of Thrive, my venture firm. And it's sort of fitting because when I was an investor, I would say that the only real thesis I actually had was that the internet would be a big deal one day. And, that was a good thesis to have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be working out. But the reason why it's an interesting one is that you know I sort of both upped my investment in Stripe and sort of upped my conviction in that thesis by joining Stripe. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, Stripe is really a bet on the internet mm-hmm. and uh, sort of the secular movement of commerce from, from offline to online. And the really counterintuitive thing about that is that even while you have you know two companies, or I guess one now, but as of a couple weeks ago, two companies with uh, uh, internet companies with market caps above one trillion dollars in Apple and for a short time Amazon, so much of the growth is actually ahead. If you look at sort of global GDP on the order of seventy-one trillion, you've got only about three percent of that currently online, about one point five trillion, and even in the U.S. about. 10% of spend mm-hmm. is online. So mm-hmm. even as you see these like giant behemoths in Apple's, Amazon, Facebook, Google, uh, Netflix, and so on, so much is ahead of us rather than behind. And so I you know, bet on Stripe because I fundamentally believed in that. Uh, of course, I like, believed greatly in the team and in the founders. And as a sort of corollaries to that, there's sort of like two other points. Like one was the power of the internet, this sort of 
latent power of the internet to uh, sort of stoke and speed globalization. Mm -hmm. The internet itself was actually designed to be borderless. And uh, part of the reason Stripe exists is because as soon as money comes into the equation, borders become very, very relevant right. again. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, betting on Stripe was sort of betting on the, the potential of the internet to sort of make good on that promise mm -hmm. of globalizing uh, the online economy. And related to that, it was, you know, a bet on the rise of developers and the power of developers in driving growth and you know, economic change in the years ahead. Great. I want to pick up on that developer point in a minute. But if I was going to describe Stripe to my mom so that it's very digestible and understandable, how do I describe Stripe? What's the right way to distill down the essence of this business? Well, sort of the one-liner elevator pitch would be Stripe is a technology company that builds infrastructure for online commerce. So all of the transacting that happens online, we build infrastructure to make it easier for that to happen. Uh, so that happens offline, we make it easier for it to happen online. The slightly more involved way of saying it is that we are often likened to payments companies. Like That's the first thing that people go to. Mm -hmm. They say, ah, Stripe, so you do payments, so you're like a merchant acquirer. Or right. actually very often, Stripe, you do payments, so you're, you're like PayPal. In fact, probably the best analogy is to the cloud infrastructure companies, the likes of the AWSs and GCPs and Azures. And the reason I say that is because it is a slightly more generalized infrastructural approach to online commerce. If you think about an AWS or any of those infrastructure companies, they're, they're fundamentally providing two services. They're virtualizing two physical things. The first is the CPU. They're providing sort of compute on demand. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's you know, EC2 for AWS. And the second is storage. And that's S3, simple storage service. Uh, virtualizing the hard drive or, or memory, depending on, on what you're using. For Stripe... Our compute is money movement, and we think about virtualizing the global financial rails. Mm -hmm. So these are card network rails, these are banking rails, these are uh, local payment method rails, these are just rails all over the world. And we think about sort of you know, money computation as you know, providing developers and technology companies with the ability to move money uh, with arbitrary flexibility online. The second, storage, is really about the bank account. Mm -hmm. And how do you just store money Online, how do you put money in the cloud? What does that look like? Uh, how do you do that if you are, you know, a retail company that just wants to store money in your Stripe balance? Or how do you do it if you're a, a platform that has you know, thousands of of sub accounts of like if you're Shopify and you have stores built on your platform? How do you store money for all of them? So for us, it's that base layer of like virtualizing the banking rails and virtualizing money storage that sort of gives rise to everything else we do. The second dimension is then sort of the application layer. And there's sort of a tried and true history of companies starting the infrastructure layer and moving up into the application layer. You look at uh, Microsoft with Windows and then moving up into the, the Office suite. You look at an Oracle starting with uh, relational databases and then moving up into initially HRIS, but then also CRM and ERP and everything else. And so Stripe is starting down in this global payments mm -hmm. and treasury network layer, the, the rails and the storage of money and we're moving up into applications to run a marketplace, applications to bill your users, applications to incorporate your company, and so many others. Great. So I now get why you saw Stripe as a huge idea as an investor and uh, why the idea of joining full-time was very compelling. I think the other thing that VCs often look at is who are the founders, and you alluded to uh, the quality of the founding team here and the team that they were building, but can you talk a little bit about Patrick and John, and why they're the right people to found and build this business? 
So I'd, I'd say really three things, and they were definitely a huge part of the equation. Uh, for and by me. the way, for listeners, Patrick and John Collison, yeah, brothers, right. very young brothers, now well-renowned, who founded Stripe really young. Exactly, yeah. Really extraordinary people. Uh, and they're a huge part of the equation uh, for me in joining Stripe, and I, I know the same is true for just about everyone who joined Stripe. I'd say it really comes down to three things with them. I mean, first and foremost, they're just brilliant. So extraordinary IQ, uh, sort of extraordinary vision mm-hmm. uh, for you know, what the future should look like. And a very expansive vision, one that sort of isn't circumscribed by any particular product, but by saying there's an entire surface area of frictions in global commerce, and we will just knock them down one after another for years. Mm-hmm. And over the five and 10-year horizon, we'll have a tremendous business, but over the 20 and 30-year horizon, it will be you know, something truly different. That um, is really compelling and unique, even in Silicon Valley, to see people with that long-term of view. Yeah, I completely agree. So the first one is honestly just their intelligence and vision. Second, which is, is not always coupled with that first one, is the sort of EQ side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're just, you know, people of extraordinary interpersonal judgment uh, and great presence and great empathy. And the third, which I think you see with, with most great entrepreneurs, is they just have a healthy amount of dissatisfaction and impatience with the status quo. There's um, an investor I talked to a few years ago who said, uh, you're only as good as your next investment. That's more or less the, the attitude they bring to building Stripe. Like, we're only as good as the next version of the API we ship. And we ship like hundreds per year. We're only as good as the next product we, we put in front of our users. So that re- relentless pursuit of excellence is a big part of it Absolutely. then. Absolutely. That's cool. So y- you allude to APIs. Let's talk about the business model at Stripe. Um, it's really unique. And you know, at least from the outside looking in, it appears to be one of the big value drivers for the company. So again, you know, in layman's terms, how does this model work? So it really depends on the user. If you are a user just getting started on Stripe, and you know, a big part of our strategy is that we will be the right solution for you when you are two developers in a garage, and we'll continue to be the right solution for you when you are you know, 2,000 people or 20,000 people and building sort of a global company and you know, public and so on. So when you're very, very small, typically you just want to get up and running really, really quickly. And so we have just very simple pricing that is transactionally based. So each time you make money, we make a very, very small amount of money. Mm-hmm. And we try to sort of obscure a lot of the complexity of the global financial system and a lot of the underlying costs and really align incentives with with our users. Uh, and, and that's actually a principle that sort of stands with any one of our segments. As you get larger, typically you start consuming even more of our products and you typically want to unbundle your pricing and really understand exactly what you're getting for your core payments, mm-hmm. which is one of the services we provide, what you're getting for a lot of the compliance and onboarding infrastructure we're providing you, what you're what you're paying for to mitigate fraud, what you're paying for to run your billing stack and everything like that. But we really try to maintain this principle of aligning incentives with the users and, and growing with them. You mentioned a second ago this notion of long-termism and how that's uh, really unique in Silicon Valley. So we've definitely thought about that also from the shareholders we have in Stripe and from keeping our shareholder base very, very narrow and and working with uh, people that we trust and and who will take that 20-year view of Stripe. And there's a there's a Warren Buffett or maybe it's Charlie Munger, but one of the other quote about, you know, it's so important to have the right shareholder base. Mm -hmm. We sort of tweaked that and we think a lot about having the right user base. And our fundamental like constituent, like our canonical constituent, is uh, the software engineer, the developer. 
And that's sort of where we started. And um, you know, as we work with larger, larger companies, we work with many constituencies within those companies, the CFOs, heads of payments, CEOs, and so on. But with developers, they typically just want to get up and running really, really fast. They want you to be straight with them in terms of exactly you know, what they're paying for, what it's costing them, uh, and be transparent. And so we just try to bring all of that to our business model and how we monetize. Really interesting. So the developer is a very important customer for you, maybe the, the preeminent customer for, for Stripe. How have you guys had to build your business and tool your business to focus on the developer and make sure that the developer feels well-served and has your focus where, where it needs to be? Well, there's a few things that developers you know, really care a lot about. And the good news of working with developers is, uh, I mean, it's both the good and bad of it, is that they're highly opinionated and very discerning. Hmm. And they also typically are pretty open to sharing their views. And so by really working closely with them and understanding what they want, things as seemingly tactical as predictability, like really giving them notice as to when things are going to change, or even better, backwards compatibility, saying we will not break your integration, or things like an API that has the right abstractions so that when you integrate in the U.S. for cards, you can then launch payment methods in other countries that may have redirects or uh, different authorization flows you know, without writing another line of code at all. Like These sorts of tactical, you know, seemingly nuanced things uh, go a really, really long way. Mm-hmm. And they also you know, want you to shoot them straight. You know, uh, there's Developers have become a very important organizational constituent and sort of just part of the driving the economy over the past, I mean, several decades, but in particular over, over the past decade, and you can sort of see this when you look at the the billboards and the bus stops with the pseudo code on them, and and you can sort of imagine the corporate boardrooms of like, what are developers like? It's like, oh, they like that they like that font that kind of looks like a typewriter, so we should like write our ad in that font and mm-hmm. so on. It's not really how you appeal to them, right? You appeal to them by just being super transparent and authentic and understanding their needs, and so um, we try to be very transparent with everything we do and. Uh, so far, so good. So, so obviously, you, you've done an amazing job as a company appealing to the developer, and that community has really grown. There's, from what I hear, very high NPS amongst developers for Stripe. Have you had any examples in the past where something didn't go quite as planned, or there was a bit of a revolt in the developer community, or at least part of the developer community, or some concern? And if so, how do you address those things up front so that they don't you know, become bigger issues down the road? Trying to think of a good example, I mean, probably the best one would be now several years ago. This is back in 2015. Uh, we were just growing so, so fast mm-hmm. that the load on our API was becoming harder and harder to manage. And I'd actually say that, that that was one of the challenges. Another one of the challenges was actually just that our engineering team was growing really quickly. And so the coordination challenge of making sure that like deploys were all tested in the ways they needed right. to be and canaried and so on was really challenging. And so in late 2015, had uh, a couple of outages. And you know I think there's another Buffett quote about you know, it takes uh, 20 years to build a great reputation and about five minutes to destroy it. And I think um, you know, that was a, you know, probably in a perfectly natural way a wake-up call to us about just what types of infrastructural investments we needed to make mm-hmm. to you know, accommodate the scale that was uh, to come. So I think try to get ahead of it, something that we've now really differentiate on. Our, our SLAs at this point is uh, 99.995% 
uptime, and we define uptime at the per request level. Wow. So it's not an elusive sort of like, oh, if 80% of requests are working, we're, we're up and running. It's like, no, 99.995% right. of requests must work. And do you let the world know that? We do. In fact, you go to status.stripe.com. We are, in a way that's painful from time to time, you know, very transparent about even you know, a minute of downtime. So I've heard you know, transparency, alignment of business model, being sensitive to the needs of developers by you know, making sure you're backwards compatible. You've thought through the global implications of, of every release. These, these sound like really important yes. efforts when you're trying to drive loyalty and, and ultimately value with, with developers. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, one other one I would say is that developers play an extraordinarily important role at Stripe. So if you look at our headcount, you take sort of engineering plus data science plus product management, it's like over 50% of Stripe. And it's not only the sort of percentage composition that matters, it's actually the role they play in developing our products. And uh, there's a sense in which our API is really developed and designed by engineers for engineers uh, that has served us very well. That's really cool. So you guys actually have a lot of GGV portfolio companies as customers. There's probably more than this, but just to name a few, Didi and Grab, Slack, Wish, these are all, you know, all great companies of ours that are also Stripe devotees. And you serve, as you alluded to earlier, the two developers in the garage, and that's you know, always been core to your, your go-to-market. But at the same time, as you, you alluded to earlier, you've now got some very big companies that you're working with. How do you manage to do that? That can't be easy when, on the one hand, you've got startups, and on the other hand, you've got really big companies that are working with you. What, what, what kind of challenges does that create? Yeah, as you alluded to, and, and this sort of brings me back to the analogy you know, to the AWSs or, or the, the GCPs or the Azures, you know, we now serve over a million businesses globally, and that's, that's, a, that's a big number. <laughs> that's when you're taking you know a lot of platforms and aggregating them up into one. Yeah. And in fact, they may be themselves, you know, hundreds of thousands of sub businesses on that platform mm-hmm. that we also have terms of service with. And so it, it is a challenge to serve all of them, and it is distinctly part of our mission to do so. Right. It is the mission is grow the GDP of the internet, and so it is a very macro mission, and we really believe in sort of like the power and sort of contingency of technological progress from the standpoint of it's not just going to happen, but if we put the right tools out there, companies of all sizes, the two developers in the garage to the you know, 10,000 person public companies, will go faster and build um, you know, more interesting and more global businesses. But to address your question more, more directly in terms of like the challenges of it, one of the biggest ones is sort of moving from that sort of single constituent, the, the sort of lead developer to the multi-constituent sale or right. service model yep. across the entire executive suite in many cases. Mm-hmm. These sort of persnickety CFOs like myself <laughs> uh, start to become uh, much more price conscious. They really want to know exactly what they're paying for. And uh, you know, much as AWS spent about six or seven years sort of turning over the market from a standpoint of you know, the strategic thing for you to do if you're a big company is to own all of your data centers and host all your data on-premise to the strategic thing for you to do is to work with you know, AWS because you'll go faster, it'll be more secure, mm-hmm. and ultimately there's like very strong economies of scale. We've been working on that as well. You know, the incumbent path for large businesses has been to build these mammoth payments engineering teams and payments product teams. And if you look at a lot of companies that have grown up on Stripe and you sort of comp them to their counterparts who may have been founded not long before, you'll find their payments 
resourcing is maybe one-tenth of what it would have been had they sort of you know, procured several acquirers and stitched them all together and built some giant middleware mm-hmm. and so on. And so telling that story in a way that the whole organization can understand and get behind is a little challenging. Another part of it actually is taking things that are highly observable in terms of costs and sort of trying to juxtapose them with things that are not as observable that uh, companies may be missing. So it may be highly observable that you know they're paying X for payments, and it's not observable to them what they could be doing if they didn't have 50 engineers working on payments. Mm-hmm. But instead, their entire company benefited from better infrastructure to move more quickly. Mm-hmm. So I'd say you know one of the big challenges is that multi-constituent sale and company management, and the second is sort of the turning over of a, a market with a really ingrained viewpoint of how things are done to hopefully a place of a better way of doing things. As you mentioned before, in the U.S., about 10% of commerce now, I think you said, is online and globally 3%. So you, you still got 97% of the global economy to go after. And it sounds like it's really, you know, things are starting to change. And so uh, that recalcitrance that might exist in some large organizations is starting to move in your favor which must be exciting for you guys. Yeah, I, I think um, to take a, a couple examples, we found you know you have a company like Kickstarter based in New York, which has uh, been on Stripe for a handful of years now, moved over, let's call it in 2014 or something like that. In, in their first six months after moving to Stripe, they actually launched in eight new countries. Uh, I think we now support them across a couple of dozen countries globally. And I don't know if they have any full-time people on payments. Wow. Maybe maybe Incredible. a small handful. Uh, and so, you know, again, allowing companies to globalize by adding a single perimeter to their integration or just adding a payment method just you know, be it checking a box in the dashboard is sort of what we've been, you know, working towards enabling. Now you guys, as you've grown your employee base, have grown in a, in a distributed fashion. You have a lot of a lot of your your headcount here in San Francisco but you're also in other cities throughout uh, the U.S. And, and also now have some, some global operations as well. When you think about the end markets that you're serving, you're also going global. Talk to us a little bit about what that process has been like to move your business to be global. Has it just happened naturally because you serve developers and developers are global and so they come find you? Or have you tried to you know, do some, some things yourself to spur international growth that might have worked well, or maybe some challenges along the way that, that you might want to talk about? So it may sound trite, but we are like deeply committed to being like a real global company. And what I mean by that is exactly sort of what you were saying, Glenn. It's, the headcount is not just going to be here in SF, it's going to be all over the world. And that's going to be full stack, you know, from sales, operations, to engineering and product. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of reasons for this, but but one of them is somewhat specific to our space, which is that it turns out money is deeply cultural, and that localization means something quite different for a company like Stripe than it does for the average software company. For us, localizing Stripe is you know not just the bits on the page; it's not just sort of like changing the language. And by the way, these are challenges in and of themselves. Oh right? yeah, but it is you know full stack to the regulators, the currencies, the banking partners, like all the way down to sort of the raw metal of the local financial infrastructure in, in, in countries outside of the U.S. Just to take an example, if you think about the U.S., it's a heavily cards-dominated market. You do have things like ACH and so on, but it's a, you know, cards are, are preeminent. 
Uh, you jump across the ocean, say start in Germany, it's all about SEPA there, right? It's about bank-to-bank payments. Cards are much less common. You just move west from there, and uh, let's say you go into the Netherlands, it's all about ideal, this very funky sort of two-factor payment method that is a very large percentage of the local economy. If you don't present ideal, your conversion rate as a business operating in the Netherlands will be much lower. And going south from there, in Belgium, it's all about banco contact, which is slightly less funky, but is still very, very localized. And then you know, south from there, you hit, you hit France, and you're like, oh, it's cards again. Like This is so great. It's easy. I'll just do cards. But it's actually not Visa and MasterCard so much anymore. It's, it's carte bancaire, a local network that has <laughs> some very, very... If you get the right carte bancaire integration, your, your authorization rates are going to be much higher, and your costs are going to be lower, and so on. So um, it's very, very localized, and this means that we have to approach it in a pretty unique way. So we announced last year an engineering hub in Dublin, and that's going to be very focused on uh, what we call global engineering, but with a heavy focus on Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is sort of localizing our product to Europe. And you have so much that's happening there. You had uh, PSD2, which sort of came online uh, in the first wave of it uh, a little over a year ago. But uh, now you have more and more PSD2 directives like coming live. There's something called strong customer authentication, which is happening next year. Um, and so that team is heavily focused on that. And Europe is now actually a very sizable portion of our business uh, and growing very quickly. And we actually announced not long ago an engineering hub in Singapore. And so uh, we uh, that's announced very recently. And that's going to be sort of regionally focused on APAC. We're at a fascinating moment in the sort of history of the internet in APAC. You have between India and Southeast Asia, order of 500 million people coming online for the first time in the next three years. And these electrical grid of payments acceptance that was built in the U.S. by Visa and MasterCard is not nearly as pervasive there. And so what our product will look like in APAC is uh, very much being determined you know, over the next five and ten years by the investments that we make and the others make uh, in the region. In terms of what it's taken to globalize effectively, I would say, first and foremost, a real commitment to it, like a, a very strong commitment to it, because organizationally, there is such a strong pull to all be under one roof, mm-hmm. and that's very difficult to do in a, a market like San Francisco, given uh, the prices of commercial real estate and honestly, residential real estate as well, mm-hmm. and affects our employees. And so if you just take the principle of like, you know, we're going to co-locate teams that work together in one space, you will never actually effectively globalize. You actually have to make it relax that principle and have a different set of principles of, you know, you may be partnering with that team all the time, but you're going to do it over VC and via sort of offsites, and we'll try to put you in the same time zone, but you're not necessarily going to be under the same roof. So the first thing I'd say is a true commitment to it, because if you're only half-heartedly committed to globalizing, you will stay put. And the second one is, I would say, really, really solid planning processes. And I won't harp too much on that, but the coordination costs go up very, very significantly as you start to put people in different time zones. Maybe it's sort of a trivial point, but you know, we found ourselves, as we started to really scale these other offices in a place where lining up our financial crimes team with our financial partnerships team, with our engineering teams, with our product teams, with our finance teams, was increasingly difficult, particularly when they were working across uh, different time zones and offices. And so really, really solid planning processes has become all the more important. 
Well, the vision you sketch out, the global vision, you know, I, I like to think of cloud computing led by AWS and, and now, you know, Microsoft and Google and Alibaba and other strong global players is really flattening, you know, the, the world from a, a computing standpoint. Obviously, your vision of, of flattening the financial world and doing that at Stripe is incredibly compelling, especially when you've still got 97% of the, the world's commerce to bring online. So I can understand why investors are so excited about Stripe. And you guys just recently announced a very large financing at a $20 billion valuation, which has got to put you in an incredibly elite company in terms of private companies that are valued at that sort of level. And you alluded earlier to the fact that you've, you've chosen your investor group very wisely. And I think one interesting element of your investor group is a lot of your early and important investors were central to the growth of PayPal, which I'd argue is you know, one of your biggest nemesis is out there, right? So tell us a little bit about what it's like to be the, the chief financial officer of a company that has achieved this kind of valuation with the, the kinds of investors, the high-powered investors you have around the table, and, you know, how that changes your life. Well, I'd say first and foremost, it's a, it's a real privilege. We've had a very supportive investors from the early days. You mentioned that uh, some of them, like Peter Thiel, um, Sequoia, were early, I guess in Peter's case, uh, PayPal employees, yes. uh, in Sequoia's case, PayPal investor. And, and that's absolutely the case. Uh, another sort of amazing thing about our investor base is that our early investors are the same as our late investors. Yeah, uh, they stayed with you. Exactly. I think Sequoia has now invested in eight straight rounds from a valuation you know, in the tens of millions to now a valuation in the tens of billions. So it's a, it's a pretty strong vote of confidence, which we obviously greatly appreciate. So I'd say you know the overarching point would be we've we've had we've kept the investor base small and the investors have been very supportive, and I think that it comes back to the point I made earlier, which is there's so much as counterintuitive about Silicon Valley and about like changes in technology and changes in industries. I think we're all um, so wired to underestimate the magnitude of opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you look at the internet and you say, oh, it's just like, it's so mature now. You know, look at these giant internet companies, they're the most important businesses in the world. And yet again, we have 10x growth ahead of us, hopefully. Um, and we're sort of investing in, in stoking that growth. And we've been fortunate to have an investor base that sees that themselves, where you know, they see the opportunity getting larger and larger over time. You know, you mentioned PayPal sort of in passing there. It's an extraordinary company and one that we have like a great deal of respect for. A pretty different strategy, mm-hmm. one that's fundamentally more focused on the consumer side. For better and for worse, we don't focus on consumers. We focus on businesses and being sort of the transparent layer of infrastructure um, mm-hmm. supporting them. And we work with you know a huge number of payment methods. You know The Apple Pays, the Android Pays, the ones I mentioned in Europe, the yep. Ideals, the Micro Contacts, and so on. Um, so it's a bit of a different profile about a company we, we think really highly of. Cool. Okay, well, this has been an awesome conversation. We're going to end with the quickfire round. So you're in the hot seat now. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Uh, just say the first thing that comes to your mind. We'll spend about a minute on each one. First question, tell us about a book you like that you recommend to other founders and, and executives at, at high-growth companies and, and why. So I'd have two. One is perhaps predictable. It's uh, High Output Management by uh, Andy Grove. I had never really operated before I came to Stripe. I had been an engineer, mm-hmm. like a junior to mid-level engineer mm-hmm. at a couple of companies, but never really been sort of an operator, an executive. Mm-hmm. And that book has been something I've gone back to time and time again. And he was just an incredible guy. And the second one, which is a bit more sort of timely, is a book called The Money Game by Adam Smith. Uh, it's a 
pen name. But the reason I recommend it is actually because of where we are uh, with the market right now. And it's a book fundamentally about market cycles Mm -hmm. and about how the financial system works. It's also just externally well-written. I read it for the second time uh, a couple months ago. And each time I read it, it just seems more more relevant to uh, sort of what's going on globally with low interest rates for... (laughs) For a decade, over a decade now, and uh, what seems to be a very mature cycle. Got it. Yeah, high output management has been recommended by others uh, on the show, and what I love about that book is it gets down into the nitty gritty. Yes. You know, here's how you run a one on one, and um, here's how you set expectations, and and then try to uh, hold people accountable. I just think there's there's so much wisdom in that book, and it's it's really down to the level of of the operating unit. I, I will check out uh, the other book. It sounds really interesting. Okay. Let's talk about your board. Um, you have a high-powered company and, and uh, lots of great execs, and you also have strong investors around the table. When you've had a great board meeting, what's happened at that board meeting? So a few things. So for one, with your board, I think particularly when they're your investors, you have to remember that they're always your investors. Even though they may be on your board and the money's in at a certain point, they're always deeply interested in your business success. And so, you know, fundraising is fundamentally about sort of empathy and self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that is what board, managing your board is about too. It's about empathy and self-knowledge. It's like knowing where they are and knowing your business. Mm-hmm. So, so I would sort of give that as an overall steer. Two, I would say the board deck got out early enough that we're not going to flip through it. Our board decks are 120-ish slides. And okay. they're so pretty, um, pretty thorough. Very, very um, chock full of information. If you flip through those in the meeting, you're not going to do anything else. And so we, we structure our meetings. We do our usual governance stuff. Uh, we then have a little bit of time set aside for operational review, which is basically questions on the slides. Mm-hmm. But we also typically then have like three strategic topics that we've had a separate set of materials prepared for. So those are circulated beforehand as well. Yeah, all the circulated beforehand, and those are the ones that we really want to deep dive. And on those on. strategic topics, are you typically trying to drive to a conclusion, or are these more exploratory? In nature, it could be either, but they tend to be things that we really think the board can have a differentially useful perspective on. So mm-hmm. we talked earlier about globalizing your company, as we thought about really creating, uh, going from one central HQ to essentially four, like tier one offices in SF, Seattle, Dublin, and Singapore. We wanted to hear from from Mike Moritz and from um, you know the rest of our board. Is this crazy? <laughs> right. Uh, what are the things we're going to run into here? Have you seen this happen before? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they tend to be topics like that where we actually think that we've done a lot of thinking. We have a hypothesis. We're pretty transparent with that hypothesis. Why we think we should do mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z. Uh, but we'd love their their input. That's great. That's great. Sounds like th- those would be great meetings. Yeah. A mentor that you've had in your career. Obviously, you've had an incredible career, uh, a multifaceted career. Any mentor you've had that's been super helpful to you and you know that others might think about how they they recruit a mentor in their life? I mean, there's a lot of people I could name here. Maybe I'll just say one. Oliver Ghani, who okay. uh, I'm sure a lot of people in, in SF would name Ali. But um, when I was making the transition from Thrive to, to Stripe, obviously it was a emotionally and uh, in many other ways a challenging transition. Spent five years building Thrive and deep relationships with my partners over there and with our LPs and so on. And I met Ali during the course of the transition. He was sort of in, in most ways a disinterested third party, but he had navigated so many similar situations in the past, but also knew exactly what was coming for me. 
at Stripe, having mm-hmm. been the CFO at Pixar and then a CFO at Twitter and the COO at Twitter. And so, um, you know, he was a, a great partner um, during that transition and has become a good friend. Like I said, there's probably a bunch of others I could name, but he's the one that comes to mind first. That's great. Well, this has been an awesome session. I think anybody listening now has a, a greater appreciation for why Stripe is such a special company with an incredible future ahead of it. Thanks so much for spending time with us and uh, look forward to, to hearing more about the, the next 97%. Awesome. Thank you so much, Glenn. Really appreciate you having me. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. You can also find past episodes and bonus content on founderrealtalk.ggvc.com. Founder Real Talk is produced by my fantastic colleague, Fisher Yen, who works on marketing at GGV Capital, and Ted Karstensen and his team at Heavybit. Our theme song is by Grapes. If you have any feedback or ideas for future guests, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat. Thanks for listening.